I'm, I'm hoping that we can see this video. We're just going to give it one try, and if it doesn't work, we won't. But probably the more important thing than, than the video itself is the sound, so that as long as people can hear it, um, it will be okay. And I'm going to try and turn some lights off over here. I don't think it's going to make a blind bit of difference. But No. Did anyone notice the lights go off? <laughs> okay, so... You want to run the video, guys? Let's pray. When I first watched that uh, video this week, uh, I've got to be honest, I was choked. I felt a little bit ashamed. Uh, but I was also provoked. Father, we want to uh, acknowledge that you're God and that you have a plan and a purpose and that we are amazingly, amazingly privileged to be part of it. Father, we're amazingly privileged that we were among those who were saved. And Father, we pray that we won't be among those who turn it into a club and forget why we're here, forget what it's about. Father, I pray you would help us to be among those that learn to extend the same grace that was extended to us. I ask that you will help me as I speak. In Jesus' name, amen. You've probably heard the phrase, and again, it can be quite challenging for us in the church, that uh, if your church disappeared from the area that you uh, were in, if, if like we disappeared from Brixton, would anybody notice? Would it actually make a blind bit of difference uh, to the people around us if we disappeared? Oh, there used to be a church. Oh. Would anybody actually notice if we disappeared, and that's quite a challenge for the church. And and uh, uh, sometimes we can, you know, we can re we respond to that in sort of many, many different ways. Um, but it can be a challenge. And uh, but I was thinking about it. I, I was thinking, actually, at times, the very reverse would also be true. The very reverse would be true. For some of us in the church, if the world disappeared would we notice? Would we notice? Would it make a blind bit of difference to me if no one else were around except us? Or am I so caught up with us that actually if people outside disappeared and there was no more awkward people who might have walked into the church, uh, would, it, would it make any difference? For some people in the church, particularly if you say, you know, if you've worked in a church, I worked in a church um, you know, in a big church, and so I was working with Christians, and then I was worshipping with Christians, and I was sleeping with a Christian, and everything was Christian. And in fact, what I had to do, uh, very, very intentionally what I did, because I thought, oh, my life, if the world disappeared, I didn't say this, but I can think about it, if the world disappeared, would I notice? Would it make any difference? I intentionally became uh, a governor at the local school as a way of just connecting with people who weren't 
in the church. We can get so wrapped up in church. We can actually get so familiar with church and culture and and it's a bit sort of club-like. We can talk about the news and the this and the that. I wonder how long it would take us before we realised no one else was here. I was challenged when I saw that video. And I felt that it sort of fitted because we're about to start a series this morning on on the Beatitudes, uh, the sayings of Jesus in Matthew 5 that are like the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And when I was talking about that with with Steve Gould, who sort of helps me put put together sermon series, when I was talking about it with him, we, we talked about the fact that the danger with the Beatitudes is it can be very personal. It can be about me, how I develop. And I'm very into me developing. I'm very sort of into that, looking into my character and trying to work things out. And we wanted to find a way where we could connect that thing that God does in me with the world in which we live. And uh, the way we came to do that was to actually start this series by not talking about the Beatitudes, but by talking about the story that comes just after it in Matthew 5. And it's when Jesus tells the disciples that you will be the salt of the earth and you will be the light of the world. And we realise that actually what the Beatitudes were about, which is sort of character development, very challenging, but character development, it's almost like in order to be salt and light in the world... I need to have had my character transformed by the Beatitudes. I don't become salt and light in the world by doing stuff. Do you know Because it's actually really easy to do stuff. It's really easy to do stuff. Anyone can do stuff. I don't become what God calls me to be by doing. I become what God calls me to be by being and by surrendering. It's something very, very different. So I'm going to read that passage, the Beatitudes, and then read Salt and Light, and then we're just going to bring out a few, just a few things from that particular passage as we begin a series where we look at those Beatitudes always in our minds. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the earth or see God, I can't remember. They will, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But that poverty of spirit helps me to be salt and light. They're not disconnected. And actually, if I'm honest, when we were worshipping earlier and and John prayed what he prayed about and it was coming out of his heart about apathy, I, I, I said to Phil, I wonder if there's just a disconnect. Because we can sing some very, very powerful words and they literally are words. They're words. So I'm going to read from Matthew 5, and I'll end up reading the first 16 verses. Matthew 5. Now Jesus saw the crowds. He went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Notice here, he sees the crowds, he goes to the mountainside to sit down, and his disciples come to him. So the Sermon on the Mount is to his disciples. It's not just to anybody, it's his disciples. He said, 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. There's a number of reasons why we want to walk through the Beatitudes. Because you may well consider yourself to be a spiritually mature Christian, and I'm not saying you're not. You may well consider yourself to be a, a relatively new Christian or a quite immature as a Christian. But every Christian will have a desire to be effective and fruitful in God. You want to be fruitful. You want to be effective. Jesus, When Jesus calls us to be sought and light, it's through the character transformation that we read in the Beatitudes that we do that. We don't do that simply by doing stuff. We do that through him changing us. And as we do that, we're able to point people to our Father in heaven. By embracing the truths of the Beatitudes, difficult as some of them are, you can get a sense of spiritual nourishment and well-being. You make a stronger connection between doing the right things, which many of us can do, and having the right motives for doing them. Because it's very easy to do the right thing, to say the right thing. And sometimes we forget, we can get disconnected, that actually God sees your heart. So you can do and say the right thing, and, and it's almost like, who are you fooling? You're not fooling God. You might fool someone you're talking to, but God knows. God knows. John Stott writes about the Sermon on the Mount. He says, it describes what human life and human community look like when they come under the gracious rule of God. So is your life under the gracious rule of God? One of the ways you can tell, you can just look at the Beatitudes, and you can go, how, do I, how am I doing? Now don't get me wrong, this is not a list of legal sort of requirements to be a Christian. 
but it is a list of what happens when you're fruitful as a Christian. So if you think to yourself, oh, well, how do I respond? If people, if people falsely accused me, when it says blessed, do I think to myself, that is not blessed. That is anything but blessed. Do I get angry? Do I go, I'm going to get them back? Do I want to justify or defend myself? Because if that is how I'm responding, am I, question, living under the gracious rule of God? Am I living in the kingdom if that's how I respond? You know, we did a series before Christmas on Joseph and we really had one theological point. One point. We just said it a few times. Yeah? God meant it for good. That's all we were trying to say. God meant it for good. But there's one point here, really. And that point is that word, blessed. Blessed. Because what blessed means, I mean, some people translate it as happy or fortunate, but probably they don't do it justice. What blessed means is this. It's the state of relationship to God in which a person is blessed from God's perspective. So it's all about how God sees you. When God says blessed, he's talking about the state of the relationship that you have with him. It is not determined by how you feel. It's not determined by your present actual circumstances. It's not about whether you're doing well or you're not doing well. When God says blessed, he's talking about your relationship with him and to him. Blessedness is not determined by whether you have negative feelings or absence of feelings or adverse conditions. It's about our relationship with God. Now, if you think about that just for a moment. When things aren't going well for me, I do not feel blessed. Why? Because I relate things to my circumstances and I think, God must be, what's going on? What is God doing? Why are these things going wrong in my life? Why is the laptop not turned on again? It gets that simple, doesn't it? The laptop doesn't turn on. This morning I was trying to put the video on. I'm over there at the back. I'm like doing this. I'm like, oh my goodness me. God, what's going on? I didn't actually respond like that today. But I can. And you can. Why? Because for me, the blessing of God is demonstrated in the circumstance. It's the situation. I feel blessed because of this. I don't feel blessed because of that. Now, if it is true that blessedness is simply about the state of my relationship, then it changes everything. And you've got to think that that might be true because otherwise it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense that Jesus would say, blessed are those who mourn. That doesn't make any sense if blessedness is to do with practical circumstances because I would mourn. I mourned when my mum died. I didn't feel blessed, I mourned. But if God is saying, in relation to me, those of you who mourn are blessed, why? Because I will comfort you. That's how you meant to see it. 
Blessedness is not about how you're feeling. It's not about whether you're feeling good or feeling bad or you're not feeling anything. It's literally about how you relate. So if you haven't got the relationship right, you can think you're not blessed when you are blessed. You can think things are going wrong when they're actually going right. You can think, I need to change things around here because it's not working out as I thought, when you shouldn't change things around here because it's working out exactly how he thought. So really, this is all about how do I understand what it means to be blessed? Do I get it? Do I understand that when God says, blessed are the merciful or blessed are the pure in heart, that he's talking about me and he's talking about my relationship with him. We are blessed because of him. You're not blessed because you're wealthy or because you're educated or because you've got lots of children. You're not blessed for those reasons. You're blessed because you're a son or you're a daughter and you're living in relationship. That's why you're blessed. So this message, we were thinking about bringing it, it's, it's an inclusive message because, because we can all relate to the Beatitudes whether or not we are spiritually mature or we're spiritually immature. It's inclusive. Whether you're a high achiever and you're bright and you're doing stuff or whether or not you just struggle to make life work, you can relate here. The other thing that I think we'll pull out in this series is when you don't follow the blessedness, blessed are the poor in spirit, if you think to yourself, well, actually, that's not me. I don't, I don't feel that. Each of those beatitudes like, has an opposite. If I'm not poor in spirit, which is how I get blessed, the danger is I can be self-confident. I can be self-reliant. So one of the reasons I pursue poverty in spirit is in order that I don't become that. If I'm not a peacemaker, I might be someone who brings division. How do I avoid bringing division? I pursue being a peacemaker. If I'm not hungry and thirsty after righteousness, I'll be hungry and thirsty after something else. So I might as well pursue the thing that I'm meant to be blessed through by hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And yet it's a challenge because the Beatitudes present to us the kingdom of God, which is literally upside-down reality. It's nothing like you think it should be. Why doesn't it say, blessed are those who earn a million pounds or more? Because that would make more sense to me. Blessed are those who have large houses. Blessed are those who always get promotion when they go for it. Blessed are those who have lots of friends. It doesn't say any of that. And it's bizarre that it tells us, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you falsely. I'm like, blessed? God, can we just talk about that? That doesn't make any sense. Particularly in our world, it doesn't make any sense that I would think I was blessed because people say false things about me. Rather, I feel angry, I feel hurt. And... But it says here, blessed. Rejoice and be glad. 
Why? Because great is your reward in heaven. So we're going to look at the Beatitudes over, over the weeks, but as I said, we wanted to begin with looking at salt and light. Because we believe this fundamentally. Salt and light are natural outgrowths of the Beatitudes. The kingdom life found in Jesus is demonstrated in the world. Jesus tells the same people the Beatitudes as he talks to about salt and light. Christians who become what the Beatitudes describe and promise will be salt and light in the earth. Salt and light is the result of that transformed life and character and it occurs when people put aside everything to follow Jesus. Everything. Jesus is not your backpack where you take him with you. Oh, I want to do this. God, are you going to come? Are you you on for this trip? Oh, yeah, okay, you come with me. Jesus is not your backpack. If you never have a moment in your life where you are wrestling about what to do or you find yourself in a place where you think, how did I get here? I don't want to be here, but God seems to have led me here. If you've never had that, it might be because you're not following his way. Because when you follow his way, there are moments when you go, how did I get here? Do you know what I asked that about Brixton? I grew up in South London. I didn't grow up around Brixton. I didn't want to come to Brixton. I, we were in Tulse Hill. I was like, oh, maybe one day we'll have a life group in Brixton. That would be great, wouldn't it? It never occurred to me to come to Brixton. It didn't even enter my head. And yet here I am. And I'm like, how did I get here? This would not have been the choice. Yet when you're obedient, you end up doing things. Yeah? And as I often say to Daisy, my youngest daughter, the safest place in the world, Daisy, is the place where God wants you to be. It's the safest place you can be. So we don't become salt and light, as this passage tells us, by what we do, but by who we are and what we're becoming. And that's important because we think of salt and light as being that part of the gospel which talks about like social action and social justice and we need to get out there and do stuff. But actually, you can do that without any reference to salt and light. You can go and do stuff. You can just volunteer. Yeah? You don't need to be a Christian to help at food bank. But you're not salt and light. If, you, know, you, you, can't be a, you can't be salt and light if you're not a Christian. Yeah? Because salt and light is something about being in the kingdom, being in relationship with God. And this is what Jesus says. The Beatitudes, he, he tells, blessed if you do this, if you do that. They're not laws, they're not rules. But he does say this as identity, you are the salt of the earth. Those of you who do this, you are the salt of the earth. Jesus describes people as salt. And you and I know a little salt can go a long way. Salt is extremely useful. And you don't need a lot of it to make a big difference. What does it do? Just You'll know this. In fact, I was reading in one book, and Artie Kendall, he said, he said, I asked my students, what does salt do? And he said, they came up with 70 different things that salt does. 70. And I, like, I could think of like maybe two. It seasons food. Yeah. Where I work at the bricks just down the road, they've, they've got piles, bags of rock salt for when it snows, they can probably then sort of, 
Put the salt on the step so you don't need to slip. Salt you can rub into wounds. It hurts, but it can heal. Salt used to be used as a preservative. There's lots of different things that you use with salt. Salt makes you thirsty, doesn't it? Yeah, you don't eat salt because it makes you thirsty. Oh, I've had friends who ate salt. It's weird. <laughs> and they would add salt to crisps. Why would you do that? You've got salt and vinegar crisps, salt and vinegar crisps, and you would add more salt. When he, Jesus described his disciples as salt, he was saying, salt is useful and salt is good. Salt helps. Salt is so helpful that in ancient times it was used as a currency. They used to use salt to barter with. Salt makes a difference. But for us to be salt, we need to allow the Holy Spirit to transform us into what the Beatitudes describe. Then we will be useful for healing, for preserving, for cleansing, for creating in people a thirst for God. If you assault, people around you will question. And part of their questioning will lead them to go, why, why, why? People don't question me often, but I had, in the badminton club that I play in, one of the guys said, you're always so calm. Now, actually, if you talk to my girls, they say, no, you're not. But in badminton, I can be calm. Yeah? You always, so, just always seem so calm. And some of them would sort of, not quite avoid swearing around me, but it would be impacting. It's not that I'd done anything. I wasn't like going around, please do not swear in my presence. <laughs> For such a thing is distasteful. No, I didn't ever did anything like that. But it would be like, oh, you know. Have you ever had that? You're working in an environment, people say, oh, I shouldn't have said that. And you're like, and, and actually what we do now is, oh, no, don't worry, say what you like. No, actually, I'm salt. And one of the things that salt do is it just makes people go, oh. They begin to question. They might begin to thirst. They might begin to look. You see, we make a mistake. The church can make a mistake in thinking that people seek God if a meeting looks attractive. They don't. It's not to say they don't engage with it and think, oh, isn't this great? But people do not seek God because something looks, the meeting looks attractive. They might be tempted to seek God because you look attractive in terms of your character. You understand what I mean? <laughs> it's not the meeting that helps them. It's the person. Because you can't absorb a meeting. I can't become a meeting. Yeah? I'm not inspired by the meeting. I'm inspired by people. But also salt, because it's used to heal and cleanse, that can sometimes hurt. People don't always appreciate what you do. They won't always appreciate what you stand for. But actually, what you do and what you stand for is good for them. For us, being salt is not a state of being that we need to work up. It's this. The power of the passive witness. Sometimes we think to witness and to, and to spread the gospel, I need to tell people, and, uh, and there is an element, of course, of that's true. 
But if you read the scriptures, there's as much talking about just who I am. Who I am. The power of the passive witness is this. Salt of the earth shows simply by being and living as Christian in terms of my attitude and my character, I will challenge some people. I will challenge them. Simply by being and living Christian, I challenge people. You don't try to challenge, you might just tell them what you do and it challenges them. I had a friend who was a fireman and uh, he worked in a particular station and uh, what I don't know much about the fire service, but what, apparently what they do is every day in order to keep themselves sharp and all of that, they do loads and loads of drills. Yeah? But sometimes what happens is they, they don't do the drills, they just sign them off. Yeah? I, I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't say that, I could be sued or something. Um, but, but, but this guy, who is a Christian, he would never sign them off if they hadn't done them. So there were occasions when he would have the whole station doing drills, when everyone else, to a man, would have signed them off, but he won't. So they do the drills. He's being, he's being sought. That's quite powerful. And that's particularly powerful maybe to his boss, who might have been prepared to sign them off, but he's like, no, no, no. Have, we done, have we done the drills? No, well, then we do, we do the drills. Salt is about Christian integrity. Not just integrity, Christian integrity. So the power of the passive witness. Then the passage tells us what happens if salt loses its saltiness. You see, what makes salt salt is the fact that it's salty. And I, I'd thought about doing an illustration, but I'm not very good at those. I'm going to try, but I'm not very good at them. And I talked about it, and I just didn't get there in the end. Yeah? But what makes it, it what it is is the fact that it's, it's taste. That's part of what it does. Now, if you know anything about salt, and I don't know a lot about salt, but so I'm told, salt can't lose its saltiness. You know, if you have a pile of salt, it won't in the end become less salty. Whereas like, if you have a bottle of Coke and you open it, in the end it will go flat. Yeah? Salt doesn't lose its saltiness. So what does it mean when it says, if salt loses its saltiness? You see, the only way salt loses its saltiness is when it gets contaminated with other stuff. Then, then it can become less effective. So I suppose if I had a bit of salt and I wanted to use it for healing and I mixed it with like a, a, you know, a whole bag of flour, it's just not going to help. Salt can lose its saltiness through contamination, which is really interesting because we can lose our effectiveness through contamination. We can lose what we're meant to do because we are contaminated by other stuff. One of, uh, I've got a prayer group that meets on a Wednesday, and we've been looking at this passage in Mark 4. And we looked at Mark 4 the other day, Mark 4, 19, and it says this. The worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things choke the word and make it unfruitful. So if you want to be a salty Christian, if you want to be the salt of the earth, but you worry about this life, or if you, are, if you are tempted by the deceitfulness of wealth, or if you just desire other things, you will be less effective. In fact, you will be ineffective. 
You will be like salt that has been contaminated. And the passage tells us salt that's been contaminated is literally good for nothing. It might as well be thrown out. That's quite challenging for us. Because is that saying, look, if I pursue all those other things and therefore I become contaminated and therefore I'm like a Christian without salt, I'm good for nothing. I'm certainly good for nothing in the kingdom. I'm good for nothing in the kingdom of God. Contaminated salt is useless. You might as well throw it away. You can't even recycle it. It's useless. So we can lose our saltiness because of Mark 4, 19, because the word that has been sown in us ends up, we end up getting caught up with other stuff. Wealth, possessions, desires for things. We get caught up with it. And it doesn't take us long before if we stood back and we, we just reviewed our life a little bit and we, we looked at our hours and where we spent them, we'd go, ah, oh, I spend 35 hours now a week playing on the video. Oh, I didn't used to do that, but I do that now. And I spend, you know, 22 hours doing this. And I spend 10 minutes a morning with the Lord. And then I go to a really, really happening church. And yeah, I'm a Christian. We can contaminate ourselves and therefore we become ineffective. Another way we can lose our saltiness is by actually not allowing the Holy Spirit to do that transforming work in our lives. You lose your saltiness when you say to the Beatitudes, thus far and no further. Poor in spirit, a little bit. Meek, no, we don't want to be meek. When you pick and choose... You don't allow the Holy Spirit to do what the Holy Spirit would do in you. You can become less effective. You see, in the world, there are only two types of Christians. There are two types of people, people who are saved and and those of us who are being saved and saved. But there are two types of Christians. Christianity isn't divided by the type of church you go to. It's not divided by your age or your understanding. It's not divided by how polite or nice you are. It's not divided in that way. It is divided in this way according to Scripture. There are those of us who live according to the flesh, Christian, and there are those of us who live according to the Spirit. Those are the two types of Christians. You're either living in the flesh, Christian, so you love Jesus, or you're living according to the Spirit. When you live according to the flesh, what happens is you often find yourself frustrated because it just never seems to work. I still battle with that thing over there. I'm still doing the same, you know, oh, yeah. And, and in the end, you do one of two things. You can either give it up and think, oh, my goodness, it just doesn't work. Or you just sort of, you just accept, oh, okay, being a Christian is just hard and I've just got to live with all that stuff. So you either live according to the flesh or you live according to the spirit. And when you live according to the spirit, you actually still might find life hard, but you do find life's changing. You find that God is, when you know, there are moments when you say, oh God, God's taught me that. I'm learning this. I'm, I'm being fruitful in that. You find that. There aren't many other types of Christians. And, and you know, if you read like Corinthians or Galatians, particularly Galatians, it talks about that very thing. 
It says in Galatians 3, are you so foolish that you would begin in the spirit and now you're trying to attain your goal by human effort? So you've become alive. You've become alive to God. You've understood what it is to be a Christian. You've understood grace. You've understood what it is to have the Holy Spirit working in you. But actually, now that has happened, you're living in the flesh. You're trying. You're almost taking God, the backpack, putting it on and taking him with you wherever you go. That's to live according to the flesh. And when that happens, it's not very difficult that you get desires for other things. That suddenly you, you, know, you hear this Christian, you go, oh, well, yeah, so-and-so, oh, do you know what they do now? They're, they're, they're sort of into this. They get boats. They're into boats. Every other weekend they go sailing. Really? In my mind, it's like, wow, where did they get the time to do that? Or if you suddenly heard, and it's a desire of mine, I haven't done it yet, but it's a desire, if you suddenly heard, do you know the pastor, he's got a season ticket to go football. Really? Where does he get the time to do that? Where does he get the money to do that? Well, gracious, thank you so much. When you live according to the flesh, you will pursue the things of the flesh. When you live according to the spirit, you will pursue things of the spirit. And you can look in the mirror, and I can look in the mirror, and you know. You don't need me to tell you. You know. You know whether you are becoming more fruitful, whether the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control, gentleness, are growing in you, or whether they're not growing in you. You know. I don't need to tell you that. But we're called to be salt, and we're called to be light. It's really powerful, actually, that Jesus describes us as light because the Bible describes him as light. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Jesus says of us, you are the light of the world. That's really interesting, isn't it? Because what it means is that what Jesus was when he was on the earth, he's put into us. We are the very thing he was. It's not just that we carry the good news of the gospel in our hearts. We are the good news of the gospel. That's quite a powerful image, I found. He describes us as light. So very quickly, what kind of light are we to be? Light does three things. It does loads of things, you know that. I'm not a scientist. But three things. The first thing light does is it exposes. It exposes. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. What that tells us, even for us as Christians, you live with sin in the darkness. You live in the darkness. There are things in the darkness that you don't want anyone to know. You have to go, oh my goodness. Do I not want the light to expose that? People around us, if you live like salt and light, you will expose sin. No doubt about it, you will expose sin. And people will not like you for it. You don't even need to accuse. You just need to be, you just need to live. And you will expose sin if you live as the light. It also tells us, let your light shine before men that they see your good deeds and praise your Father who is in heaven. And this is where we get on to sometimes the social action and the social justice thing. We think good deeds, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. That's not really great in a sermon, is it? However, what it's saying is this. 
the light shines and it exposes your good deeds. Your good deeds aren't the light. It's the light that shines that exposes good deeds. Don't think to yourself, by doing good, you're the light of the world. You're the light of the world, and as the light of the world that shines, people will see your good deeds. And when they see your good deeds in that context, they will praise your Father in heaven. You need those three things. You need, you need to understand that light shines, and when it shines, it will either expose sin or it will expose goodness. When it exposes goodness, people will praise God who's in heaven. So light exposes. Secondly, light points. It points you somewhere. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Light points. It points to him. It points to us as his people. Another passage says, Thy word is a lamp to my feet and it's a light to my path. It points in the direction that I am to go. So it exposes sin or goodness. It points to Jesus. It will point to us as his representatives here on earth. And thirdly, light draws. It draws. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. That picture of the light of the world. Jesus as the light of the world. The church as the, as, as the light of the world draws people. Isaiah 2 talks about the mountain of the Lord being raised up and becoming chief of the mountains and people are drawn to it. They're drawn. Light exposes, light points and light draws. So for us to be effective as salt and light, we firstly need to have our lives transformed. We need to shine those beatitudes over us and we need to go, God, would you expose stuff that needs to be dealt with? Would you direct me in stuff I need to walk in? Because if we don't do that, we're not salty. And what the Bible says, if we're not salty, the Bible says we're good for nothing. The Beatitudes help us to become salt and light. Do you know who you are? Do you know that Jesus says you are salt and you are light and that you're to make a difference? Let's pray. I just want to encourage you in this moment to just pray your own prayers. Make a response to God. He may have spoken to you through the sermon. He may have spoken to you through the worship. He may have even spoken to you through the notices and the announcements. I just want to give you a moment to respond in your heart to him.
right at the beginning, we watched that video and it's just that powerful end where it talked about ships still get wrecked in those waters, but these days most of the people drowned. Father, we don't want that to be the case in our place. We don't want people that we work with, live with, communicate with, live around. We don't want them to drown. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us as individuals and as a body to be salt and light where we are. Whether that's in our workplace, whether that's in our home, whether that's in, in the church, that we would be salt and light. And Father, that we would see that as we shine the light of these challenging sayings of Jesus into our own hearts, that as we, are, we learn to submit ourselves to them, that we become what you have always intended for us to be. Father, I pray for us. I pray for this community of people. I pray for every person here. And I ask, O oh God, that you will show us as a community, but also individually, what is it we need to do to align ourselves to your ways, to become Christians who are led by the Spirit and are not led by the flesh. I pray, Father, where it's necessary and we need to repent and sort ourselves, I pray we do that. I pray, God, that there would not be a disconnect between the truth that we hear and the life that we live. I pray... Father, would you build a bridge by your Holy Spirit? In Jesus' name, amen.